All right, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Living Hope Christian Center. My name is Benjamin Robinson. My wife, Sunny, and I are the pastors of Living Hope. We are in the middle of this series called Rebrand You, and we have this workbook that is designed to empower you to get the most out of this series. If you're a member of one of our community groups, you get this for free. Uh, for those of you that have this already, please take this out. Make sure you're taking notes during the message. Also, bring it with you to your community group meeting so that you can get the most out of that discussion. Amen? All right. This is part three of our Rebrand You series, and I'm really excited with where we are going today. I would like to draw your attention to a passage of Scripture in the book of Genesis, chapter 32. We're going to look at verses 22 through uh, 29. 20, no, 22 through 32. Uh, Genesis 32, 22 through 32, here's what it says. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons, and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip and the socket of Jacob's hip, was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you break me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen the face of God, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Peniel, the sun rose on him, and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. Father, speak to us today by the power of your word and spirit, we ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As I said, this is part three of our series. We're talking about the rebrand of Jacob that happened at the most dangerous moment in his life. Now, the rebrand of Jacob is different than the rebrand of Abram, and it's different than the rebrand of Sarai as well. You see, when God rebranded Abram and called him Abraham, it was simply an extrapolation. Abram was exalted father. God says, I'm extrapolating out of that and taking you to the next level. I'm calling you father of many nations. And sometimes when God comes to rebrand us and to change our identity, the new identity he gives us is an extrapolation of the old. He's simply saying your expectations are too low. I'm taking you to a place of higher expectations, but in the same direction you are already going. And then when God rebranded Sarai and called her Sarah, uh, Sarah is simply a variant of Sarai. It's as if your name was Michael and God changes your name to Mishael, or your name is Stephen and God changes your name to Stephen. It's the same thing. And in changing Sarai to Sarah, what God was saying is, I'm simply opening, opening your eyes 
to, what, to the significance that I've already put in you, to the blessing that I've already put in you. I'm not changing your identity at all. I'm simply changing your identity in your own eyes. That is, I'm calling you to see that you've always been significant, but you thought you weren't significant. And so sometimes God simply has to open our eyes to what he's already given us, open our eyes to what he's already done. But this is not the case with Jacob. Jacob, his name is changed to Israel, and these two names, they have nothing to do with each other. They are not similar etymologically, neither are they similar uh, in terms of their definition. Um, however, there is a similarity, and we'll get to that in a second, but the name Jacob, Jacob, means one who grabs the heel. And he's given that name at his birth because his, he was the twin, and his brother Esau was born first, and the first part of Jacob that came out of the womb was his hand. And with that hand, he grabs the heel of his brother Esau. And so when they saw him grab the heel of his brother Esau, it was like a statement. He was grabbing his brother's foot. You're not getting away from me. I'm not going to let you be first. I'm always going to be wrestling and fighting to try to obtain the first place. But I'm going to be wrestling and fighting to obtain that first place by my own power by my own strength, with my own wisdom. And so they named him Yaakov, one who grabs the heel. They said, this is your identity. You're always going to be jockeying for a better position. You're always going to be fighting to obtain a greater place, a higher status, and you're always going to be doing it by your own power and by your own strength. And so the name Yaakov, it communicated to Jacob a sense of self-sufficiency. He was a hustler. He was always hustling to try to acquire by his own power, we would later discover, that which God had always intended to give him by providence. Now, his name is changed to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God. He's changed from one who grabs the heel to one who wrestles with God. And we'll get there. Now, at this point in his life, it's the most dangerous moment in his life. And it's dangerous because his brother Esau is on the way with 400 men. And he assumes that tomorrow when I meet my brother Esau, he's probably going to kill me and all that I have and take all that I have. And so it's an extremely poignant, dangerous, important moment in his life. And it's at this place that the rebrand transpi transpires. But in order to understand why that is significant and specifically how significant that is, we've got to go back and see what led Jacob to this place in his journey. What leads him to this place in his journey is that uh, his brother Esau, being the older brother, possessed two things. Number one, he possessed the birthright. The birthright in ancient Israel meant that the oldest son always received a double portion of what the other son's would receive in terms of inheritance. So if the inheritance was $100,000 and a father had three sons, the oldest son got 50,000 and the two younger sons got 25,000 each. That was the birthright. The one who comes out of the womb first has the birthright. And so Jacob always coveted the birthright of his older brother Esau. So what does he do? He waits for Esau to go on a long hunting trip and knows that when Esau comes back from his hunt, he's been out probably for several days, he's had very little to eat, he's going to be in a very, very hungry and therefore a very vulnerable place. And so at the place of vulnerability, Jacob waits for Esau and he makes stew, red stew, which is a play on words because Esau, the name Esau means red. And so he tempts red Esau with red stew. 
And we see that Esau there sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. He says to, to Jacob, Esau says to Jacob, uh, give me some of that soup, I'm, I'm so hungry and that soup smells so good. And Jacob says, I'll give you the soup, but you've got to give me your birthright in exchange. And I, I would imagine that there was some heated conversation there. And Esau says, for real, Jacob, for real, you think you're going to take my birthright for some soup? And Jacob says, well, you're not getting the soup unless I get the birthright. And finally, at a certain point, Esau breaks down in the face of temptation and says, what good will my birthright do me if I die of starvation? And so he gives Jacob the birthright. He forsakes his birthright. He renounces his birthright, and then he eats the bowl of soup. And then afterwards, he is so ticked off. You know, in this particular situation, Jacob represented Satan. He was like a typology of Satan, because that's what Satan does to us, isn't it, right? At the very place where you're hungry, at the very place where you're tired, at the very place where you feel broken down or you feel depleted in some area, that's when temptation comes knocking at your door, and Satan offers you so little in exchange for so much. And if you, if you fall to temptation, you find yourself beating yourself up inside. What is wrong with me? How could I have forsaken my birthright for such a small, meager portion, such a small, meager provision? First, Jacob steals the birthright from his brother Esau, but then he still wants the blessing. And the blessing, the way it functioned in ancient Israel, is that the father had the power to speak a blessing over his children. And, and before he died, the father would confer the blessing. And the son upon whom the father would confer the blessing not only inherited the birthright, but the blessing they believed had the power to make provision for the son and to give him the right of rulership and the, and the right to lead. And so the blessing was just as powerful as the birthright. Jacob didn't just want Esau's birthright, he also wanted his blessing. And so the father, Isaac, he's on his deathbed. His eyes have grown dim, he can't see very clearly. He calls his son Esau in and he says, go out on a hunt and make me some tasty food so that I can give you my blessing before I die. And Esau goes out on his hunt, but their mother, hears Rebecca, she sees and hears that conversation and she calls Jacob in and she says, quick, run out to the flock and, and get a nice uh, lamb and, and, and kill it and cook it for your father and, and take it in. And, and he says, but don't you realize that my father's going to realize it's me and I'm going get, to get a curse instead of a blessing? And the mother says, don't worry about that. I'll handle that. And she clothes him with, with the skins of, 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 with wool and sends him into his father. And sure enough, he, he tricks his father. First, he tricked his brother into giving him the birthright. Now he tricks his father into giving him the blessing. And the father speaks the blessing over him. And so now Jacob, by his own conniving, by his own hustling, by his own strategizing, by his own will, by his own power and understanding, has stolen two things that God had destined him to possess anyway. This is really the nature of temptation. Temptation is the means by which Satan entices you to take by your own power that which God has destined you to possess by his providence. Just like when he, he took Jesus through the temptations and he took him up to a high mountain and says, bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And Don't you realize that I'm destined to possess all the kingdoms of the world anyway? Throw yourself down from this temple because it says he'll give his angels charge over me. Yes, he, he's going to give his angels charge over me, but not now, not today. Turn these stones to bread, for it's written. And Jesus is like, turn these stones to bread. The Father's promised me bread, 
but why would I try to do it by my own power and by my own strength? Jesus succeeded because he refused to do by his own power that which God had promised to do by his providence. You see, we live by the promises of God. The problem is when we try to fulfill the promises on our own behalf and by our own power. The promises are God's to fulfill. And that self-sufficient spirit seeks to provoke us to do by our, our own power what God has already promised to do by his providence. So the problem is, once you start to live by your own power, now you have to sustain yourself by your own power. And so now Jacob's in a place where he's got the birthright and he's got the blessing, but now Esau is out for blood. Matter of fact, Esau is consoling himself at the thought of his father's death with the fantasy of killing his brother Jacob. I mean, Esau is laying in bed, and he, he would think about the fact that pretty soon my father's going to die, and, but what would, and he would feel the sorrow come, and the, he would feel the grief come at the thought of the loss of his father. Why? Because all the way back when Jacob and Esau were little children, the father, Jacob, I'm sorry, the father, Isaac, he favored Esau over Jacob. Why? Because Esau loved to hunt. I remember when my daughter was three years old and I used to read this story to her and it was her favorite Bible story and it was one she could tell. Jacob and Esau. And, and uh, Jacob liked to help his mommy in the kitchen. And so the mommy liked Jacob. But Esau liked to go hunt. And so the daddy liked Esau. And Esau would think about losing his father and the pain that would cause him. And he needed something to soothe the pain, something to soothe the grief. And he would soothe himself with the thought of killing his brother Jacob. Now there's another sermon in there, and we'll get to that one day. And that, that, that sermon's going to be about how the temptation of the enemy causes us to use anger to soothe our pain. And we'll get there, not today. So now Jacob is in trouble. He's got to run for his life. He goes to his mom. What am I going to do? His mom says, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to Haran, to the home of your uncle Laban. You're going to go see a side of the family that you've never met before. Matter of fact, you're going to go see a side of the family that none of us have ever met before. We only know about them because our grandfather Abraham told us the story of how in Genesis chapter 11, when he was in the city of Haran, God spoke to him and said, get out of your father's house and go to the place I'll show you and I'll make of you a great nation and I'll bless those who bless you and I'll curse those who curse you and I'll make you a blessing and in you all the nations of the world will be blessed and Abraham obeyed and went even though he didn't know where he was going. You're going to go back to that city that Abraham left. You're going to go back to that place and you're going to hang out with family members, a side of the family that you've never met before. And how does Rebecca know about that side of the family? Because that's where she was. She was actually, Laban was actually her brother. And actually Rebecca was brought from there to be the, the, hus the wife of Isaac, her husband. And so she says, you're going to go to my side of the family and you're going to hang out there and it's going to be a place of shelter for you until your brother Esau cools down. Temporary fix. But when your life is in danger, a temporary fix will do. 
And so Jacob runs for his life, and we know the story of how as he was passing through the wilderness, he has a vision of, or a dream, really, of a door open in heaven, and the angels descending and ascending, and, and the God is standing at the top of the ladder, and he promises him, I will not leave you until I fulfill all of my good promises for you. And Jacob names the place Bethel, and he says, surely God is in this place, and I was not aware of it. How awesome is this place? And he continues his journey. He comes to Iran. He meets his uncle Laban, and immediately he falls in love with Laban's daughter, Rachel, and he starts to negotiate his own contract. He goes back to that spirit of self-sufficiency. He sees something that he desires. He sees something that he wants. He wants Rachel as his wife, and so what does he do? He doesn't consult the Lord. He doesn't depend on God to provide for him. Instead, he tries to negotiate his own contract, and so he goes to his uncle Laban and says, I'll work seven years for you if you give me Rachel as my wife, and Laban says, no problem. And so he works for seven years, and we know the story of how uh, seven years later the wedding comes, and at the end of the wedding feast, he consummates the marriage, and he wakes up the next morning, and he looks next to him in bed, and it's not Rachel, it's Leah. Who happens to be less physically attractive than Rachel? Imagine how disappointing he thought that he had done it right. He thought that, that he had done it the right way, but instead he gets swindled. He's used to being the guy who swindles others, and now he's the one who's being swindled. He's used to being the guy who concocts plans to get over on other people. He's used to being the one who grabs the heel, but now he's in a situation where someone else is grabbing his heel. See, this is the thing that we need to understand is that sometimes God puts us in situations in which we receive our own medicine back to us, and it's not punishment. we got to get out of this fatalistic way of thinking or karma. You know, It's not about karma. It's not about fatalism. It's not about getting what you deserved. It's not about punishment, but sometimes God puts us in situations in which we will be broken in precise places. It's his redemptive work in our life. You see, God is not punishing Jacob by allowing him to receive his own medicine. God is redeeming Jacob from that thing, and sometimes you don't see the thing until it's done to you. It's grace. The thing we got to re realize about the life of Jacob is throughout his entire life, God saw all of his maladies, God saw his character flaws, God saw, but yet God still spoke to him in the desert and said, I will not leave you until I fulfill all of my promises for your life. He doesn't come to Jacob and say, Jacob, I got such awesome stuff for your life, but the problem is you're a swindler and a hustler and you're always trying to do by your own power what I wanted. God is not rebuking him. God is simply giving him promises. And he, it, it, but it's not like that God doesn't see it. He's saying, I see it, but I'm going to walk you through it. I see it, but I'm going to walk you through it. I'm going to reverse the curse in your life. I'm going to flip the script of everything that the enemy has tried to implant in your life. I'm going to change the identity that the enemy has given you, and at the core of that identity are your own character flaws. But I'm not scandalized by your character flaws. I see them, but I love you anyway. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that powerful? Isn't that encouraging? And so now, it's been 20 years. Jacob has two wives. He, he got Rachel, and then he got Leah, and then he had to work another seven years for Rachel. Now he's got flocks and herds. 
There's this exchange between him and Laban where Laban tries to swindle him and then he swindles Laban back and then Laban tries to swindle him and he swindles Laban back and, and it's just kind of tit for tat and then Jacob is winning because the blessing is on him and now Jacob has amassed all of these flocks and all of these herds, all of these men servants and all of these maid servants and now he's got two wives and he's got concubines from his wives and he's having kids with the concubines and he's having kids with the wives and the Lord speaks to him and says, enough of this. It's time for you to go back to your own country. It's time for you to go back and face your brother Esau. It's time for you to go back to that place that you would rather never revisit again. You see, you are never so close to the fulfillment of your destiny as you are at the place where God calls you to face your greatest fear. When, when God calls you to face the thing that you would rather never look at again, when God would call you to go back to the place where you would rather never return because it's too dangerous, it's, it's too painful. I can't go home. Esau's still there, and Esau will still kill me. I have no assurance that anything has changed there. And God says, it's time for you to go back. And so Jacob, the entire journey back, he's thinking about, what am I going to do? That spirit of self-sufficiency is still strong in him. 20 years of duking it out with Laban hasn't killed it. He's made progress, but there still needs to be a breakthrough. Oftentimes, you can look at your life and realize, I've made progress in this area, but I still need a breakthrough. I'm better than I was before, but I still need a breakthrough. I don't do it as often as I did, but I still need a breakthrough. J Jacob had not had his breakthrough moment yet. That is, God still needed to rebrand him and change that identity and break that. Jacob didn't know how to be any other way than he was. And many of you are at a place where you don't know how to be any other way than you are. Matter of fact, all of us, none of us know how to be anything other than we are right now. And God says, yes, there's a process, but there's a breakthrough moment that's coming. It's coming. And so Jacob, he's strategizing. What's the strategy? He's even praying that God would give him the strategy. God, you need to give me the strategy. He prays, oh God of my father Isaac and fear of my father Jacob. You know what? He's, he's praying. He's crying out to God. That's part of his strategy. Pray. Second part of his strategy. I know what I'll do. I'll divide my family up. Watch how Machiavellian this is. How, how it's not Machiavellian, actually. It's, I don't know what to call it, but it's, there's this ultra-pragmatism that comes out of his flesh. Here's what I'll do. He takes the concubines and their kids and puts them at the front. And then he takes Leah and her kids and puts them next. And then at the back, he puts Rachel and her kids, and he stays with them. Here's what he's saying. If Esau attacks, at least he'll kill the people that I love the least first. So that maybe the people I love the most in the back can turn and run away. There's my strategy. Then he starts thinking, it's not quite enough. I don't think that'll do it because, well, I'm sorry, I skipped a part. First, he sends a messenger ahead to Seir in, in the land of Edom to find Esau. Go and tell Esau, your servant Jacob is coming and he's got wives and children and concubines and maidservants and men servants and flocks and herds and God has blessed him and he's, he's coming to you and he hopes he finds favor in your eyes and and so these servants, they go ahead, these messengers, they run ahead to Edom and they find Esau and they tell him and then they come back to Jacob and Jacob says, did you find Esau? He, they say, yeah, I found Esau. Okay, what did he say when you told him I'm coming? So he didn't say a word. He just called out 400 men. They armed themselves. They're on the way to meet you right now. So Jacob's thinking, dang, he's on the way with 400 men. Step one, messengers didn't work. Step two, now I'm going to divide my family up. 
put the ones I love the least in the front, the ones I love the most in the back. And he's thinking, that's not enough. It's not going to do it. I know what I'll do. I'll soften him with gifts. So he grabs a servant and he grabs a flock of sheep, let's say. He says, take this flock and go on ahead. And when you meet Esau, he's going to say, where are you coming from? Tell him, this flock is a gift from your servant Jacob. He, He has been blessed by the Lord and he offers you this as a peace offering. And so the servant goes off and he waits a couple hours. He calls another servant out. He goes, take another flock and go out there. And when you meet Esau, tell him, these are a gift from your servant Jacob. And, and, and he sends you know, servant after servant after servant with all these gifts. He sends, he's trying to soften them up with kindness and with all these gifts. That's not quite enough. What else can I do? 400 of them are coming. They're armed with swords. It's just me and my family and my kids and a handful of servants and handmaidens. What am I going to do, attack him with sheep? create a stampede of goats? (laughs) What am I going to do? And I could see Jacob just taking the whole afternoon to just pace and trying to come up with a plan because I've always been able to scheme my way out of trouble. I've always been able to somehow strategize my way out of trouble, but here there's no strategy left. I've come to the end of myself. I've come to the end of my ingenuity. I've, I've exhausted my resources. I've exhausted all of my wisdom There's literally nothing else I could do. And this is the most important moment in Jacob's life where he comes to the end of his identity, where there's no more heels for him to grab. And so he's left with only one recourse. And so he puts everything he has on one side of the river, including his flocks and herds, his servants, his wives, his concubines, all of his children, all of his wealth. He puts it on one side of the river, and he's left alone. When there's nothing more for him to do in the natural, he makes a decision to isolate himself with God. And the scripture says, and a man wrestled with Jacob. He's gone from wrestling with Esau to wrestling with God. He's gone from wrestling with Laban to wrestling with God. He's no longer wrestling with flocks and herds. He's no longer wrestling with wives and concubines. He's no longer wrestling with sons and daughters. He's no longer wrestling with flesh and blood. Now he's wrestling with God. You see, the problem is not wrestling. The problem is that we tend to wrestle in the wrong place and with the wrong people. See, Paul said that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The problem is that does not describe most of our lives because most of us are wrestling against flesh and blood. And no breakthrough happens in your life as long as you're wrestling against flesh and blood. God wants to rebrand you. He wants to liquidate your flesh. He wants to break you out of those those patterns and, and he wants to replace it with a new identity, but he cannot do so as long as you are continuing to wrestle with flesh and blood. And most of us are wrestling with everyone but God. You're wrestling with your boss like Jacob was wrestling with Laban. And you're wrestling at your job, and you're wrestling at your job, and you're wrestling at your job, and you come home and tell people how you're wrestling at your job, and you tell your friends how you're wrestling at your job, and and you tell your wife that you're wrestling at your job, and people ask, why are you so depressed? Because I'm wrestling at my job. But the one thing you're not doing is going in your prayer closet to wrestle with God. 
And you're wrestling in your marriage and you're wrestling with your spouse and you're, you're telling people how you're wrestling with your spouse and you call your therapist because you're wrestling with your spouse and, and people ask why you're so depressed. It's because you're wrestling with your spouse. But the one thing you don't do is go in your prayer closet and wrestle with God. You see, you cannot win the wrestling match in the, in the flesh. You cannot win a wrestling match with your spouse. You cannot win a wrestling mouse, wrestling mouse, <laughs> a wrestling match with your boss. You can't win a wrestling match with your finances. You have to make a decision. I'm going to stop wrestling with flesh and blood, and I'm going to start wrestling with God. I'm going to stop trying to figure out how to appease Esau. I'm going to stop trying to figure out how to get over on Laban. I'm going to stop trying to figure out how to work it out with my wives. I'm going to stop trying to figure out how to have more kids. I'm going to stop trying to figure out how to fix my finances, and I'm going to go wrestle in the right place. I'm going to isolate myself with God. I'm going to put everything on one side of the river, and I'm going to put myself on the other side of the river, and I am going to have my time with God. I am going to deal with God. I'm tired of trying to deal with everyone else. Now it is time to deal with God. And a man wrestled with Jacob. You see, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should change his mind. In actuality, God is God. He is not flesh and blood. So how is it that a man wrestles with Jacob and then changes his name to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God? You see, my little nephew, Maxwell, whenever I go over their house, Maxwell, my little nephew, he meets me at the door. Uncle, uncle, fight, fight. He loves to fight me. And so I go, okay, let's fight. But here's what fighting is with my nephew. I go and I get on the floor, and then he runs and jumps on my back. Ah! And whenever he jumps on my back, I go, oh, and I fall to the floor. And he goes, yay! And then he um, punches me in the back. And I go, oh! And he goes, yay! And then he jumps on my back. And I go, oh! And he goes, yay! That's wrestling. Is he really beating me up? No, he's not beating me up. I'm condescending. I'm accommodating him. I'm coming down to his level. I'm saying, I want to enter into this with you. You see, fathers actually love to wrestle with their children. I remember my dad used to wrestle with me and my brothers all the time when we were real little, and it used to drive my mother crazy. Be careful. You're going to hurt one of them. Be careful. You're going to hurt. My dad, the bigger we got, the more rowdy our wrestling with him got. I remember when my brother was in high school and him and my dad got into a wrestling match in the living room, and they fell into a big armchair, and the armchair went through the window. Half of it was hanging out of the window, and they're hanging. And my mother's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, stop it, stop it. There's something about fathers that just love wrestling with their sons. It's almost like when you're wrestling with your sons, you feel like you're escorting them into manhood through that process. They've got to feel your strength but not be destroyed by your strength. But the worst thing in the world is for a father to accidentally hurt his child. And I've had that experience more than one time where I've accidentally hurt my daughter and it just, it just tears me up. The most recent time was we were in Kauai a couple weeks ago, and my daughter and I are playing in the pool, and we're playing this game where one of us gets into a handstand and the other tries to push us down, right? Now, me, mo you know, more of my body's coming out of the water. Also, I'm less coordinated than her, okay? So every time she would just push my legs, I would just topple over. I couldn't stay up. But her, she'd get into a handstand. I'd push her legs, and she would just fly across the water, but she's still on a handstand. And she'd put her hand, and she's still there. And I'd push her again. She'd fly through. The she I couldn't push her down. She had to decide to come up, right? But I thought, I got her this time because I know she hates being, well, she actually likes, but she's really ticklish in her knees. 
And so if I just pinch her knee, like on both sides, it's ticklish to her. So I go over to her and I just quickly, you know, grab both of those knees. And all of a sudden she comes up out of the water. I realize I made her laugh underwater and she took in water. And I'm like, oh my God, oh my God, baby, are you okay? Oh my God, oh my God, are you okay? I'm just like totally like, like totally destroyed because I, I, I was playing with my daughter. I was wrestling with my daughter, but I wasn't actually trying to hurt her. But watch what happens when God wrestles with Jacob. God says, let me go. It's time for me to go. Let me go. This thing is over. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. Sometimes the blessing doesn't transpire until God sees that we're not going to let it go. Until God sees that we are committed to continue to wrestle in the right place until the breakthrough happens. And when God sees Jacob is committed, God says, okay, I'm ready to give you the blessing that you desire. But it comes in two parts. Part one, the breaking. God reaches around, grabs his hip, snap, breaks his hip. Step one, God has to break you. Which we often and almost always misinterpret. The breaking, we don't realize, is step one of the blessing. And we tend to misinterpret the breakings that God takes us through in our lives as signs that God has abandoned us or that we have failed God or that God is punishing us, not realizing that the breakings in our lives are strategic answers to prayer. That when you pray for God's blessing to transpire in your life, God always has to break you as a prelude to the blessing. Why? Because Jacob's entire identity was in his ability to strategize, to do things on his own, to be self-sufficient. What God broke when he broke his hip, when he dislocated his hip, was his self-sufficiency. He dislocated his pride, and it had to be permanent. Jacob walked with a limp, for the, a limp for the rest of his life. Why? Because he could never go back to that place of self-sufficiency once God broke him in that area. And God knows strategically how to break you in a place to bring about a permanent change to your life. If you look back over some breakings that have happened in your life, you'll realize that there's some stuff that you'll never go back to again. Why? After I went through that, I'll never go through that again. And had you not gone through that, there's no way you could have ever set yourself free. The problem is we misinterpret those things. You see, everyone who enters into the, break, the breakthrough of the Lord has to walk through the, the, the way of breaking. God breaks everyone before he blesses you. It's just everyone's breaking looks different. I mean, if you look at Abraham's breaking, it was wait until he was a hundred before his kid was, before the, Right? Sarah's breaking was having a kid at 80 years old. Yeah. You know what I mean? That was completely different breakings. But God couldn't wait till Jacob was 99 years old, so he had to do something quicker and more severe. You, I'm snapping your hip. I haven't snapped anybody else's hip, but I'm snapping your hip. Why? That's where you need to be broken. And we tend to look at people's lives and say, Lord, why does this person have to walk through this? And we tend to look at our own lives and look at what we walk through and go, why do I have to walk through this? Having no idea that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. 
that the breaking is strategic because it makes way for the blessing. And we often miss the blessing because we abandon the place of prayer once the breaking comes. We walk away from the wrestling match after God breaks us. Say, man, I asked him to bless me and he broke my hip. That's messed up, man. And we miss the fact that God was beginning to answer our prayer, but first he had to liquidate our flesh. The breaking of God in the life of the believer is always redemptive, never punitive. And then he says, now it's time for the blessing. First the breaking, and now the blessing. That sounds to me like Jesus when he fed the 5,000 and they gave him the bread and the fish. What's the first thing he did? Was he broke it. He cannot multiply that which he does, that which he does not break. He breaks it, and then what does he do? He blessed it. And then once he blessed it, what did he do? He gave it. And that's what God does in our lives. He breaks us, and then he blesses us, and then he gives us. As long as we remain in his hand through all three stages, we tend to run away once the breaking hits. How many people have I talked to who were disillusioned because God broke them in some way or God allowed them to be broken in some way that they could not understand and they walked away and they abandoned the process and you missed the best part? It's like going to the hospital for a surgery and they have to open you up, but they open you up on the table and you're like, man, I'm out of here. You were supposed to heal me. And you leave all cut up before they actually take the cancer out. You can't leave the table because they cut you. So many of us, we get off of God's operating table because he cut us. But Jacob remains in the presence of the Lord through the breaking. And then God says, what's your name? Watch this. All Jacob wanted was for God to tell him, your brother Esau is not going to kill you tomorrow. That, that's all. What he's actually fighting for, what he's actually praying for, just don't let my brother kill me tomorrow. That's all he wanted. That's the, that's the blessing he was asking for. And God says, what's your name? He says, my name is Jacob, Jacob. And he says, you shall no longer be called Jacob. Because I've broken you and you've remained in my presence, you shall no longer be called Jacob. That place that you can never fix in your heart, that character flaw that you could never solve in your heart, that thing that you've been running from but could never escape, it's not your identity anymore. It's not your identity anymore. You shall no longer be called Jacob. But Israel. Jacob is the one who wrestles with man. Israel is the one who wrestles with God. You shall no longer be called Jacob. A shift has happened in your life because you have wrestled with God and man and have prevailed. But in that order. You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. I'm rebranding you. I'm changing your identity. I'm breaking stuff off you that you could never break off yourself. I'm reversing curses that you could never reverse in your own power. I'm taking you beyond your self-sufficiency. I'm breaking you in a place where you will never heal, but I'm blessing you with a blessing that will never be taken away. And when you walk away from this encounter, you're going to thank me every day for that limp. Wow. 
you're going to look back on this wrestling match and say, I wouldn't change that for anything in the world. God, I'm so thankful that you allowed me to walk through that season. I'm so thankful that you allowed me to walk through that valley of the shadow of death. I thank you so much that you allowed me to, to walk through that trial, to carry that burden for as long as I carried it. I'm so thankful that you allowed me to be liquidated in my flesh in that place. I've been meditating on uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, where Paul says he died for all so that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for he who died for them and rose again. Do you realize that until God liquidates our flesh, we still live for ourselves and we don't even realize that we're living for ourselves? He died for all. Don't you realize that he allowed himself to be broken? And whenever we look at the breakings in our lives and we say, God, why? We've got to stop and look at the cross and say, that's why. He's not asking us to do anything that he did not do on our behalf have first, and he did it to a far more severe measure than any of us could ever. His breaking was so far greater than any of our breakings, it doesn't even compare. But he allowed himself that when he fed the 5,000 and he broke the bread, it was prophetic of the fact that his body would be broken, just as he sat in the upper room with his disciples and broke the bread and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This word from the Lord today is designed to encourage you because many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, we're walking through a season of many breakings. Matter of fact, 2020 is a year of many breakings. We need to get t-shirts that say, I survived 2020 and start wearing them on January 1st, 2021. If I'm still alive, <laughs> that is, uh, that's a thing, that's something but we must not misunderstand and misinterpret the breakings. And many of us are in a place where we're wrestling with the wrong thing and with the wrong person and in the wrong place. Some of you have been wrestling in your marriage. You need to stop wrestling. You know what? Some of you are wrestling because you think, if I could just get my husband to see this, and so you're wrestling with your husband to get him to see it. If I could just get my wife to see this, and so you're wrestling with your wife to get her to see it, stop it. It's not going to work. He's not going to see it. She's not going to see it. Stop wrestling with her. Stop wrestling with him. Get in the prayer closet and start wrestling with God. Because we'll argue with our spouses for hours, but we won't talk to the Lord for 10 minutes. Some of you are, you are wrestling with your job. You're wrestling with your boss. Some of you are wrestling with your parents. You're wrestling with your children. Wherever it is that you're wrestling, make a decision today. I'm not wrestling in that place anymore. I'm going to start wrestling with God. I'm going to learn to isolate myself with God, to turn away from everything, to put everything I am and everything I have on the other side of the river and wrestle with God. And in that place, God meets you. He changes your identity. The shift transpires. You're no longer Jacob, Jacob the one who wrestles with men. Now you are Israel, the one who wrestles with God. And when you begin to wrestle with God, you prevail. Bow your heads and let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, I speak your blessing over each and every one of these sons and daughters of yours. I pray you strengthen and encourage each one by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
God, I pray that a decision would be made in hearts and minds right now. The decision that I'm going to isolate myself, not as a one-time event, but as a daily practice. I'm going to learn how to put everything that I have on one side of the river, and I'm going to go to the other side of the river, and I'm going to wrestle there with God. Lord, I've been wrestling with men. I've been wrestling with women. I've been wrestling with my wife. I've been wrestling with my husband. I've been wrestling on my job. Wherever it is you've been wrestling, God, I've been wrestling in the wrong place and with the wrong person. But today, at this moment, I'm coming to the right place. I'm coming to wrestle with you, God. And I know, God, that I can, you know, the whole goal of wrestling with God is that I would surrender myself to God. Say, don't fight God, surrender to God. But yes, but I've got to come to God with all of my obstinance. I've got to come to Him with all of my rebellion. I've got to come to Him with, with you know, my heart is so obstinate and I can't change it. And so I'm going to, I have to wrestle with God before I can fully surrender to Him. So God, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. And I won't let you go till you bless me. I won't let you go until the work is finished. Just as God told Jacob, I will not leave you until I fulfill all of my promises towards you. My face says to you, God, I will not let you go. I will not leave you until you bless me, until you fulfill your promise toward me. I believe your promises. You promised that you would keep me from falling and present me blameless before your glorious presence without fault and with great joy. I will not let you go until you fulfill that promise in my life. You promised, God, that you have redeemed me from my sins by your blood, that you've made me a priest and a king unto you. God, I will not let you go until you fulfill that, until I see that in my life. God, I'm going to keep seeking your face until the change transpires. I believe. I believe the word that you've spoken. And so, Father, I just speak your blessing over each of these sons and daughters of yours today, all those under the sound of my voice. And I speak to those who are here and you're watching and you're listening and maybe the Spirit of God is moving on your heart and maybe you've never opened your heart to Jesus, but the Spirit of God is moving on you and God is calling you to open your heart right now. If that's you today, I just invite you to say this simple prayer with me. Just say, Father, go ahead and say it out loud. Say, Father, I come to you. In the name of your son, Jesus. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. To wash me and make me clean. To come into my heart and make me your child. Teach me to walk with you all the days of my life. Deliver me from every power of the evil one. I ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Now listen, if you prayed that prayer today, I want to invite you to just drop a line in the chat right now and say, I prayed the prayer. If you could just drop that in the chat and say, I prayed the prayer. It's about making a public declaration of the fact that you've invited Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Also, a link is going out in the chat right now that says, I prayed the prayer. If you just click that link and let us know who you are, we want to follow up with you. We want to walk with you. This is the most important decision that you've ever made in your life. We want to empower you to live out that decision for the rest of your life. And for each and every one under the sound of my voice today, I say to you that the Lord loves you with an everlasting love. And I want to strengthen and encourage you with the knowledge that the breakings that you have experienced in your life are not punitive, but it's the beginning of God fulfilling every promise that he's made toward you. I just speak blessing and encouragement over you today in Jesus' precious, holy, mighty name.
Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful day.